All right, so now we're pressing record. Now we can really go. It's difficult for us to know what's true and what's a lie, especially today. I mean, the example Cliff gave yesterday, he was talking about those deep fakes, those videos that, that are, have been developed where you could literally put the President of the United States up on a video saying whatever he wants to say, and it's not actually him. Right, and that, that is really, really scary. If you all ever see a video of me saying something I shouldn't say, just assume it was a deep fake, right? <laughs> was not me, right? But it, but it is. I mean, all of us now, we're living in a world where you've got all kinds of information constantly getting into your mind, and you're getting that information from sources that you don't really know if it's true or not, right? I mean, you don't know if it's true or not. And so we, we have to get good, right, at discerning what is actually true. Uh, I mean, just the advent of the Russian bot fiasco, right? We, we have to know what's true, what's not. Uh, because the spreading of lies is a strategy that many different organizations are using for one reason or another. So it's imperative on all of us. We are people of truth. We need to know what is true. So that, that's going to apply, you know, in your, everyday, in your everyday walk of life, you know, just very, very easy application. We've got to find a process to know what is true. And so I'm going to take you through a bit of a methodology of that today. I thought it'd be a good exercise, though, to, talk, to start with, how are y'all doing this today? And I'm being really serious about this. How are you doing this today? Your, your social media feeds, your news feed, what you're watching on cable news, what your, you know, what your friends are telling you, the different email chains that go around. I'm not going to say who in this class sends me emails from time to time, that almost all of them are lies. But, but you know, it's a... Uh, but, but you get, you're always going to get information sent to you. How do you know if it's true or not? What do you do today? Just talk about this in your groups. What do you do today to help you know what's true and what's a lie. Talk about that for a moment. We'll come back. All right, well, let's, let's bring it back here. So the, the original question for the group was, you see something, whether it's your social media, email, news, whatever it is, how do you actually make a decision for yourself whether or not it's true or not? And, and I got to say, this is, we, we have got to be good at this. I mean, and I... I mean, people have come up with all kinds of tactics for this, uh, but you've got to know. I mean, there's a whole website now, there's a whole website that is solely devoted to proving whether or not something you saw that gets popularity on the internet is true or not. So, I mean, have you guys seen Snopes before? So, so literally, I, you know, that's all they do. They're trying to be a source to say, is this true or not? Because so many people are being misled. You know, social, social media companies are... Well, I don't know. Yeah, it's everybody has an agenda. Just assume everybody has an agenda. But, I mean, you look at social media companies are really struggling with this. They're having to find good ways to work their algorithms, to put little disclaimers on things about is it true or is it not. Hold on, I'm going to mute these guys again. Um, so so we, we see this. And so, but let's just think about this. Maybe the most basic way is if you think about, if you think about some of the conversations you probably had, you probably all go through a very similar process. If I want to know if something's true or not, I have to go to some sort of authority that I trust to tell me it's true. I have to trust the authority, right? So as a kid, that may have been your parents. You know, for my kids today, they don't ask me anymore. They ask Alexa, 
right? They just ask Alexa everything, and Alexa tells them the answer. Alexa is, is an infallible authority in my home today. So, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, so, so you have to go to some sort of authority. Is this true or not? You know, then if we're, we're kind of testing the authority, right, that authority normally, you know, and so a lot of people used to go to the local news. Uh, a lot of people used to have, you know, our news outlets used to be very, you know, more structured. You can't really do that with news anymore because it's just all over the place. So if you can't really trust that authority, next people will, will start to look at, well, what does my reason say? Right? What, 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 what do I think about this? Does this make sense? Right? We, we try to think things through. Does this actually make sense? Yeah, it's not really. People think it is, but it's not. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so we're, we're, yeah, we're definitely a class that does not believe that truth is subjective. So, so, so this, our whole, our whole uh, attempt, yeah, hold on, yeah, let me keep going at the end. Well, no, I agree too. So I'm saying that's why we're saying we don't believe truth is subjective. You can't have your own truth, right? Truth is, truth is, what's that? Yeah, hold on, well, well, let me keep going. So, so. If you, if you try to think things through, right, you try to logically conclude things, think for ourselves, and then you may go, like, hey, let me go talk to somebody who's close to this, right? If, I mean, the other day I got a text message, and it said there's a dumpster on fire at the school. And I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, th- no, there's a dumpster on fire. I'm like, surely there's not a dumpster on fire. So who do you think I went to to determine if there was an actual dumpster on fire at the school? I went to Pat Fowler, right? Pat Fowler, is there a dumpster on fire at the school? Why, and why did I go to Pat Fowler? Because I knew if there was something on fire around this place, Pat would be close to it. And sure enough, there was a dumpster on fire outside of the school, and Pat Fowler was close to it. I went to someone who was close to the, close to the topic to say, is this really true or not? Everything was fine, don't worry. But there was a dumpster on fire, an actual dumpster fire. Um, so... <laughs> So we go through that, though. We look for the authority. What does the authority say? We try to use our logic and our reason to help us understand, can this actually be true? And then we'll go to people who are close to it to help attest to it. It's like, well, if anyone would know, you would, and I trust you. So, so what is this, right? Is this true? Is it not? If you think about anything you see on the news, we, we go through similar processes to try to discern what is true. Well, John Wesley, you know, we're a Wesleyan-based church. He, he went through similar processes to help us understand Scripture, what was true in Scripture. He would actually look at anything that was going on in context of our theology, and he would, he would take it through the same filter. He would say, well, go to your authority. What do you think our authority is? The Word of God. We believe, think about what we believe. We believe that every word in this was breathed through the Word of God, that was breathed by God, right? This is the inspired Word of God. God is truth. So can God be a lie, right? God can't lie by the nature of who he is. So we believe that scripture is authoritative. Uh, so, so what we'll do is as, as you think things through, as you learn something, as somebody tells you about an experience they've had, if you have anyone that says, God just told me I needed to go do this, right? God told me I needed to go murder my family, right? God did not tell you you needed to go murder your family, right? Because that's inconsistent with the word of God, right? This is our authority, if it doesn't line up with what's in here, we're going we're gonna to immediately say, well, that, that can't be right, right? We then say, okay, as we try to work through that, what does our reason say? Let's think this through. Like, let's try to understand it properly, right, in the context of things. And then we'll go and we'll think about, 
we'll, we'll do the same thing. Who was close to it? What Wesley would say is, go to tradition. And by tradition, what he meant was, go to those early church people. Go to the early church fathers. Right? What are those people who walked with Jesus and who learned from the people who walked with Jesus and the people who learned from the people who learned from the people who walked from Jesus? Those first few hundred years of church history, what did they think about this subject? And if you put those things together, what you'll find is you can start to discern a better way to understand the Bible, a better way to understand these stories. And so I thought, you know, if we're trying to help ourselves better articulate how to discern truth, we might as well start with the most outlandish, one of the most outlandish stories in the entire Bible, the fact that some guy got swallowed by a big fish. Can we believe that actually happened? Can it be true? Right? So let's take it through the process. Right? What does the scripture say? Let's make sure we understand what the scripture says. What does our reason say? And what, what's the tradition say? What did the early church fathers say about this? Did they think this was just a made-up story, a parable, right, to help, to help teach a, a, a subject? Or do they think this thing actually happened? If so, what in the world's up with that, right? And whoever disagrees with me at the end of the class today gets to go jump in the pond, right? That, so that's how we're going to work this class. So let me read the text. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 2. I'm actually going to read verse 17 of chapter 1, and then I'm just going to read all of Jonah chapter 2 real fast, and then we're going to work through this. It said, And the Lord, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet, shall I, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land, whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the best way to be, to be expelled from a fish is to be vomited out on dry land. I mean, I think we all know that. Uh, but it's a, this is a crazy, crazy story. I mean, it is a crazy story. So let's think about this. Let's start through our process. What does the scripture actually say? And we need to make sure we understand what is actually being said in this scripture, right? Not what we think it says, but what it is actually saying. And so I, I told you earlier, I, I believe Jonah is a historical narrative, right? It's actually telling us a story. But the last class, last couple of classes, we talked as well about how the way the story is being told is somewhat satirical, right? It's being told in a bit of an outrageous way for a reason, right? We're, God is making a point through Jonah. He was making the point about his people repenting, right? He was making that point. So we understand that we need to understand what, what the scripture actually is. This is a historical narrative. So I'm going to go through a few things that I, I picked out as I was reading this scripture that I thought were really important for us to actually understand about what the scripture says. The first thing was this, 
In verse 17 of, of chapter 1, it says that Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, when you hear three days and three nights, what do you think that means? Well, I mean, it seems pretty clear. Three days, three nights, we think about Jesus. Most of us will think about Jesus. Three days, three nights, we'll, we'll have that idea. Uh, but did you know three days, three nights actually was a very common phrase uh, in the ancient Near East at this time? Uh, three days, three nights, it wasn't necessarily hyperbole, but it was, it was a bit of a common saying. And, and what it meant is that pretty much three, it's, if we're going to be there three days, three nights, it's long enough to make sure you're dead, right? Long enough to actually be dead. So it's not necessarily a literal saying, but it, it was a very common saying that says, I'm going to be there long enough that I am actually dead. This isn't just for show. It's the same word Jesus uses. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. Uh, whenever he was talking about the prophecy of Jonah, the sign that he was going to show that he was going to be there long enough to actually be dead. So, so just hear that. Uh, what, what, what we're hearing from this text is that a big fish swallowed Jonah up, and he was swallowed up in there a long enough time that he could actually be dead, right? And it would be clear that he was dead. Now, could he have been there three days and three nights? Yeah, very, likely, very well could have been a true three days, three nights. It also could have been an extended period of time that people would have understood that phrase and say, he's been there long enough to be dead. So we see this is a kind of an odd passage. This is a psalm right in the midst uh, of a very you know, just narrative, and so it's a bit odd. And so a lot of people have, have looked at this and said, this psalm that is right there in the midst there in chapter 2, well, that must have been placed after the fact, which would tell you it really couldn't happen. And, and that's, that's just not right. What do, we, what do we know about Jonah? He was, what was his profession? He was a prophet. He was a prophet. What do you think prophets spent a lot of time reading? The Bible, right? The Hebrew text, right? The Old Testament. There's a lot of Psalms in the Old Testament, right? So, so Jonah would have been a person who was completely familiar uh, with the way Scripture was read. The, this structure of these Psalms would have been very familiar with him. Uh, he would have, the, him being able to recite and repeat and regurgitate the, the flow of the language and the way that people express their, their, their uh, sorrow and their mourning and their thanksgiving and their distress, right? This would have been something that was very normal for Jonah. So the fact that he could have articulated what he was contemplating in the belly of fish actually makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense if you think about what we were talking about last week with the nature of this story being a bit satirical, right? You know, being a bit outrageous, being almost funny, right? And for me, as I was reading the psalm, it seemed a bit funny to me that the man who is so angry and hates the Ninevites so much and just wants them to die, doesn't want them to be delivered, he's then got this beautiful psalm right in the middle of it where he is begging for his own life to be delivered. Right? We see a bit of the irony coming through uh, in this psalm that, that really correlates well with the rest of the story. I then went to this uh, passage in, in verse 2, where it said, from the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And this is a, Sheol is, is a term you'll see a lot in the Old Testament, uh, actually all through New Testament as well. Uh, but but thought it would be good for us to talk just for a moment about what that actually means. And so this place, the ancients believed this was the place of the dead. Uh, it was considered to be a place of deep darkness, of dust. Most importantly, it was considered to be a place 
where you were completely separated from God. Now, now at the time, remember, people had a very different understanding of, of the globe and, and physics and structure and everything at the time. A lot of people believed that this place actually existed at the bottom of the ocean, beneath the ocean floor. And so as we see Jonah going down into the belly of the fish, going down into the ocean, you know, him being so worried about drowning and everything that would come out from it, as he's crying out about being saved from the belly of Sheol, you know, that's a bit more of a real meaning to people than you might expect, right, based on what the original reader would have been hearing about this. He is fearing his death. You know, he is, um, he is really, really concerned but it also continues in a little bit of the satire and the irony, right? I mean, think about this. Jonah was going all the way to Tarshish to get away from God, and he thought that he could go on the plane of things and get all the way away from God. Uh, yet, whenever he feels like he is in the depths, when he's at the belly of the beast, when he's at the belly of Sheol, where the one place where you're actually separated from God even though his desire had been to go away from God, when he actually gets to that point where he could be separated from God, he cries out because he wants to be delivered. Right? And just if you see that irony come through, he, he wanted to be away from God, but when that actually is coming to fruition, he can't stand the thought of being away from the presence of God. So we see that come through um, over and over. In Job chapter 10, Job talks about Sheol, and he, he says it this way. He says, are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I might find a little cheer. Before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where light is as thick as darkness. This would have been the, the imagery, right, whenever people were thinking about Sheol. And so just imagine Jonah telling this story in utter darkness being afraid of drowning, being afraid of, of being separated from God, that same theme of darkness would have been carrying over all the way through. So that's what Scripture is actually explaining is kind of happening here in this story, right? Jonah's been swallowed by a fish. He's been swallowed long enough that he could, he could have died. Uh, he's going down into the belly of Sheol. You're seeing this darkness, you know, all around. But then we have to ask ourselves, what does Scripture how does Scripture actually interpret Scripture later on in the Bible? And so we, I heard a little bit a second ago, we hear about Jonah again in the Bible from a fairly authoritative source. Who talks about Jonah later on in the Bible? This guy named Jesus. And I hear he's a pretty big deal, right? Like we, we've got a lot riding on this guy being, you know, the fact that he's the incarnate God and all. So Jesus himself talks about this guy named Jonah, which is kind of interesting. And so if you go to Matthew chapter 12, I'll read it. You don't have to go there, but you can. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, uh, we, see Jonah t or we see Jesus talk about Jonah. Uh, the scribes, the Pharisees, are trying to test Jesus at this point in time. And it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
And we could do like three lessons on the, on the parallels between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus sleeping on the boat, being awakened. Jonah can't control the seas. Jesus can. Um, you know, Jonah doesn't want to go preach a message of repentance, even though he doesn't know how to turn it out. Jesus does go preach a message of repentance, knowing he's going to die. There's all kinds of little parallels about Jesus being this great um, symbol of us, greater Jonah that comes through. Uh, but we see Jesus talk about the story of Jonah. And here's my question. Does it seem like Jesus is talking about a parable in the way he's describing Jonah? Seems like he's talking about something that actually happened, right? And so one thing is just as, as we think through, how do, we, how do we know if this is something that really happened or not? We see the Son of God actually talk in a way that it seems like, you can make a reasonable case here, he's talking about it like it actually occurred, right? And that's a pretty important thing. I live by a principle in my life that, it's been pretty important to me, and that's if, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's normally good enough for me. And, and I feel like I'm normally not wiser than Jesus. Actually, I am never wiser than Jesus. And so I want you to see that, though. Scripture interprets Scripture. Jesus talks about this like it actually happened. Now, I say all that, and it'd be easy, and you can, you can kind of say, okay, Jesus said it happened, move on. I still struggle with this story. I struggle with it, right? I struggle with the idea that a giant fish, whale, great white shark, there's all kinds of theories out there of what exactly animal this was. Some people think it was a sea serpent. It's just, and that, that, I don't, we won't go into all that, but all kinds of theories out there. I struggle with it. I struggle with it because I struggle with anything that seems supernatural or miraculous at all. I'm a cynic by nature. I'm a finance guy, for God's sake. If it doesn't reconcile on a ledger, it isn't true, right? So, so for me, I struggle with this. So even though Scripture seems to attest to the fact that this actually happened, let's use our reason for a moment. Can we use our reason and help justify what we read in Scripture? And so, so if, I use our, if we use our reason, we need to make sure we actually think deeply. Because there's all kinds of people out there that will tell you that if your reason leads you to any conclusion that anything but a truly natural event that I can explain with methods that are currently available, if there's anything that happens outside of that sphere, it must be a lie, right? I just got done reading Dawkins' The God Delusion. I've talked to a few of you guys about that. And Dawkins will pretty much tell you that, that if you believe in God, not only are you a fool, but you're actually hurting a lot of people, right? And he says, you, you pretty much, you get done reading it, and you've got this idea that you can either believe in God or you can be smart, and if you do believe in God, right, you can either be one of those, like, good Christians that believes in God but takes away all the supernatural stuff, or you can be an ignorant fool, right? And I, and I just, so that's what, how he'll make it out. And you'll have a lot of people who will tell you things like that. And so I want to actually think deeper than that. I want to use reason. I want to use logic. I want to think through this problem. And to do that, I'll go to my favorite example of this. I want to go to the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, has anyone ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or seen the movie at any point in time? C.S. Lewis? Man, not as many as I thought. Okay, I'm going to explain this just a little bit. All right, short story. So, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, you got four little kids living in a house in England during the war, right? And they're away from home. They've moved into this house out in the countryside to escape the Blitz, right? And so these four kids, two of them are fairly old, two of them are fairly young. Well, the youngest one, a little girl, discovers this wardrobe. 
And she goes through the wardrobe, goes kind of into the back of the wardrobe, and when she gets to the back of the wardrobe, she's in this new land, this other world called Narnia. And she goes and she meets a fun character and has a little adventure, comes back in, no time has really passed, and she thinks it's just a crazy. And so she tries to tell her siblings what's occurred, and her siblings are like, no, you're, 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 you're a little kid, you're stressed and everything, that can't be true. Well, her, her, her brother, Edmund, uh, finds his way into the wardrobe, stumbles in it, realizes she was telling the truth. He goes into Narnia as well. Really crazy stuff. Well, Edmund comes out, they meet, he meets Lucy. Lucy's all excited because somebody finally believes her, right? And Lucy goes running in, talking to her older brother and sister, and says, it's true, it's true, it's all true, Edmund was there. Edmund gets embarrassed, and he goes, Lucy's just, she's lying, right? He gets embarrassed, so he calls her a liar. She gets really upset, lots of tension in the family. But the two older siblings, they just, they're struggling because Lucy's really upset, right? Really, really upset. And it's causing problems. And obviously, this whole land of Narnia it has to be a lie. She's making this up. She's a little kid. So they go to the one authority in the house. They go to the professor who owns the house. And they start talking to the professor. And they tell him this story of what Lucy had said, what Edmund had said. And the professor goes, well, why do you not believe her? And it took them aback, right? It took them aback. They, they, they couldn't believe that the professor, they thought the professor would be like, well, as any grown-up would, well, obviously, I'll check in on her. She must be upset. He goes, well, why don't you believe her? And so they're, they're kind of shocked, and the professor goes, well, between Edmund and Lucy, can you tell me, he uses reason, he goes, can you tell me between Edmund and Lucy, which one of them normally is truthful and which one of them normally lies? And they go, well, actually, Edmund lies all the time, but Lucy... We've never known Lucy to lie. She's always a great kid. And he goes, okay. So he goes, well, so let's say she's not a liar. We've, we've, we've come to the conclusion that she's not a liar. So then another explanation for her having these delusions. Is she mad? Is she sick? Right? Is she, has she gone crazy? And they're like, well, well, no. Everything else is completely normal. She seems fine. And he goes, I can tell you she's fine. I've talked to her a number of times. She's not crazy. And he goes, so if I get this right, she never lies. She's not crazy. There's nothing else going on. Why is the logical conclusion not to believe what she's saying? And he goes, and, and by the way, he goes, this house is a big house. There's a lot of things I don't, know. I don't know about this house. He goes, so there could be a lot of things going on that you don't understand about this house. And so until there's something else to prove differently, logic, reason would tell you she's telling the truth. Right? She's telling the truth. So I think about that. Whenever you actually use reason and you think about this story, you go, well, Jesus said it happened. Everyone seemed to believe it happened. By the way, if you look at your tradition, if you look at the tradition, all the early church fathers, the people who talked to the people who walked with Jesus, they all believe this actually happened. right? And just because it seems so crazy to us, it seems so crazy to us that this could happen, Logic would actually tell us it did. It actually happened. Right? Our reason would lead us to that conclusion. Our reason wouldn't lead us to that conclusion. Especially if you think to yourself, you're like, well, hold on. What do we know about God? Well, we believe that he created the heavens and the earth. We believe he created the animals. He has dominion over the land and sea. Right? He, oh, by the way, he did this whole virgin birth thing that seems like a pretty big deal to people. Right? He, oh, 
Or do we really believe that he came back from the dead and conquered death, right? Do we believe all of that, that there's this outer cosmos and this universe and galaxies that he is the creator of? If we believe all of that, is it really so far-fetched to believe that he could command some animal to do his bidding? Logic would tell you this actually happened, right? And I just, I want you to think deeply about that. Now, I'm still a cynic. I don't believe. Uh, I mean, I, I just tend not to believe these things. So what does history tell us? Does history have anything to help us here? Because like, it'd, it'd be really helpful for me if I had the archaeology of the exact big fish that swallowed Jonah, and there was a little like marking on the bone inside the fish that said Jonah was here, and it gave me the dating. Right? That would be great right? if I could have that. We don't have that, I promise. Uh, if they dig that up one day, that'd be really cool. They're digging stuff up all the time. But there's no Jonah was here archaeology at this point in time. There is some interesting history, though. There's some really interesting history, and I thought this would be fun to share. So, back to lesson one, where we talked all about the Assyrians and everything else. Uh, The Assyrians worshipped a god, and the god that the Assyrians worshipped, a lot of people in the Mesopotamic region worshipped at that time. It was a god named um, Dagon. Am I pronouncing that right, Bill? Dagon? Dagon? Philistines, Dagon, all right. Does anyone know? Does anyone know how people visualized the god Dagon at that point in time? What they believed he was? If you go back and you Google Dagon, you'll find some ancient manuscripts, some paintings, different things. They believed that Dagon was this kind of half fish, half man, this kind of fish god, right? Uh, so you would, you would see him sometimes almost like a merman, sometimes like a fish with the head of a man. Uh, you would see that all the time. And so we, we, I want you to think about if you were an Assyrian and you're worshiping this god Dagon that has this quasi-proximity to this god or fish-slash-man god, And let's just assume that you saw this man come out of this fish on the shore and and you actually saw that. Don't you think news of that would spread like wildfire, you know, across the Assyrian Empire? Because doesn't it seem a little crazy that so many people repented the way they did with such a small sermon uh, preached by Jonah? But if you actually had this, you, you understood this mythology of this fish god and you saw this man come out and conquer this fish coming out of the sea, well, that seems a bit crazy, doesn't it? Right? It might get people talking. It may give this guy some street cred as he goes throughout Nineveh talking this message about the one true God and they need to repent behind that one true God. What's interesting is if you go back, there was this um, historian, this Greek historian, uh, back, let me make sure I get this right, this Greek historian who had gone through and interviewed or got some, some primary sources from this Babylonian priest named Barassus. And just real quick on our history, who conquered the Assyrians? The Babylonians. You've got to go back to your lesson one notes on this, right? The Assyrians were in charge. The Babylonians came in and conquered the Assyrians. So a few hundred years after the story of Jonah, there was this Babylonian priest named uh, Barossus. And he wrote of a mythical creature. And this mythical creature emerged from the sea to give divine wisdom to men. Scholars generally identified this mysterious fish man as an avatar, the Babylonian god. But there was a curious thing about the account of this Babylonian prophet who, who wrote about this mythical creature. He wrote, as he wrote about this, this creature, 
this you know, God-type presence that gave divine wisdom to men in the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh, uh, you know, around the time of Jonah, as he wrote this story that had kind of gotten captured and brought up in the folklore, folklore in Babylon, he wrote down this guy's name. And if you go through and you trace this guy's name and you look at how the, the Greek spelling of this name occurred and you go back to how the Assyrians would have written the name, can anyone just take a guess of what this guy's name was? His name was Jonah. This mythical creature who emerged from a fish and gave all this divine wisdom to men in Nineveh, his name was Jonah, coming from the Babylonian records. And I just thought that was just really, really fascinating. Uh, you, could, uh, you could imagine that if this story really occurred and it was that crazy and you had that tied to your, your god, Dagon, and you saw everything occur the way it did, what, this, what reason would tell you on this is it kind of got picked up and, and taken on, shifted over time, uh, but, but people would have carried on that tradition to where a Babylonian priest who would have come through after this time period was writing about it and telling about it. Just really fascinating stuff. All that to say, if we look at the story of Jonah with the idea of if this is true or not, we can use the authority of Scripture, we can use our reason, we can look at the tradition of the church fathers, and we can actually discern and say, until something else comes up, that would prove us otherwise, this sure seems to be true. I mean, it really does. I, I, I say this because it's so hard to believe this story is true. So hard for me to believe this story is true. But if God could do this, right? If God could do this, if he could take... Jonah out of the belly of the fish, if he could rescue him from the depths of despair, if he could rescue him from darkness, if he could do this miraculous thing to save Jonah and set up the prophecy that Jesus will fulfill for the sign and all these different things that come out of this that you could go, to, go through in the story. If he can do all of this, right, we can trust, we can trust that he can work incredible miracles in our life too. If, if we can't believe this story of Jonah could possibly be true, it's hard for us to believe that the miracle that has occurred in our lives, that God saved us from the pit, right? It's hard for us to believe that that miracle is true as well. But I believe that miracle is true. I believe that all of us who have put our faith in Christ by His grace, right, all of us have played a part in something that is supernatural, miraculous, and cannot be demonstrated by all of our scientific standards, right? I believe that to be true, right? And I want you to have confidence that we can use our reason, we can use our tradition, we can use our experience to understand that this word is true and the miracle that's been worked in your life is actually true. The application I'd like us to take away from today is I want two small points of application. One is this. I want you to know that there are things you can do to think deeply and to discern what is true and what is a lie. Right? I gave you a process to go through here, but there are things that we need to do. We are men of truth. We need to think deeply and understand why we think things are true and why we think things are not true. Right? We went through a process here until we say we believe this is true. At least I do. I believe this is true. My second point, though, is I want you to remember that no matter what you are going through, you are the child of a God who works miracles, right? 
God has worked miracles in, in your life. You are a child of that God. He is real. He is truth. You can rely upon that truth. And he has truly rescued you from the pit. I want you to remember that. And what I would ask you to do this week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a psalm. And I'm going to ask you to all do this this week. If you could do this every day this week, I think it would be helpful. I think it would be good to get up in the morning and pray this psalm to God to remind us that we are a child of God, a God who has rescued us from the pit, just like he rescued Jonah. Right? So here's the psalm, Psalm 86. And I'm going to, I, would, I would tell you to, verse 6 through 13. I'm going to read you this psalm. And, and I want you to pray this psalm on a daily basis. Let me read it to you. It says, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. I want you to pray that psalm. Pray those words of God back to God. Right? Let him hear your thankfulness. Let him hear your quiet assurance. Let him hear your praise. And may he grant you such grace that you will be constantly assured that he has rescued you from the pit. Make sense? All right, let me pray and we'll get out of here today. Father, I thank you for these men. I thank you for our great church. And I thank you for the word that you've given us. Uh, we believe in you and we trust in you. And we thank you just that you've helped us understand uh, may you watch over us. May you give us discernment. May you give us wisdom. And may we apply it when you give it to us. May we walk out of here today committed to being thankful for what you have done for us, knowing that it's actually true. It's so easy to believe that it's a lie. But you've shown us over and over again that your word is true. Your promises are true. You are who you say you are. And you will do what you have said you will do. We thank you that your faithfulness is steadfast and your grace abounds. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great day.